was a real human being like his mom was pregnant went to the hospital gave birth came home with a rat looking child this is in the book in the book not adopted she did not adopt a rat like Stuart little a human person yeah gave birth is Stuart a mouse or a rat i don't know but yes a real person Stuart little yes it's in the book today has been really hard (laughs) I'm sitting at a table built for a hobbit. Which has extendable uh, legs, which I've offered to extend, and we Eric has said no. Set up. We were already set up. We're moving at the speed of business. I don't have time to move <laughs> table legs. Yes. I'm very busy. Now I'm finding out that rats are being born of people. Yep. <sighs> All right. Fine. Fine. We have I good guess, news. I guess we can soldier on <laughs> and say, Welcome. To this episode of Print Run, my name is Eric Kane from a very, very small table. Uh, with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, today's going to be fun. We're going to talk about some recent uh, book things. Some uh, nonsense. I think some, we can call it nonsense. We can call it nonsense. Um, but before we get into any of that, um, basic rundown stuff. What do we got? Absolutely. Uh, so first things first, uh, we... We are recording regular episodes again, so that means that we are also creating Patreon content. One thing that we added, what is it, April? One thing that we did in March um, was institute separate office hours for me and Eric. So if that sounds fun, where you just like log on once a month and ask us questions, um, join Patreon. And it was really fun. It was super fun. Like we had, so just as context here, like... Last month, we each, you and I each made ourselves available mm-hmm. on Zoom for one hour. Yep. And I thought the conversation, at least on, you sounded like you had a really good time too, but I know in my session, we had like 25 people. People were having fun. People showed up just to listen to the conversation. It was really free-flowing and good. Uh, we talked about big publishing things. We talked about specific query-related things that people were wondering about. Big, small. We talked um, a lot about like market forces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like... It was almost like a print run call-in show in its own way. You know what I mean? It's like we had a good sizable amount of people to kind of go back and forth with. And I thought the experiment went over really well. So we're going to do it again this month. And one thing that was suggested to us between Eric's office hour and mine is that we record them and Mm -hmm. put them up on Patreon. So if you missed it or would like, you know, to go back or you have to join Patreon later, um, you can have access to those recordings. They're just uploaded onto Patreon, so that's super fun. Yeah. Um, we will also be doing, because Eric's baby is going into daycare, so we're going to be doing a query show and our first pages show. Um, I'm super excited to bring that back mm-hmm. because they're fun to do, and um, we, at least people have told us that they're very helpful. So if, well, we pick, so how this works is we pick first pages or queries, depending on the show, at random. And with kind of random plus with the goal random of having plus. different different genres for yeah. each uh, for each of the three submissions that we critique. And we just kind of go through and, you know, do it line by line and talk about the strengths and the weaknesses and what we would like to see a little bit differently. 
Um, and those are available on Patreon as well. And finally, for those of you who donated f- to our fundraiser to uh, trans organizations mm-hmm. in Texas, yep. um, we are almost done with going it. through them. And so we're sending them back as soon as we're done with your critiques that you purchased. Thank you very much. Um, and so we're, we're, we're working on it pretty hard. Yep. Um, so as always, if you have any questions or you can't afford access to Patreon and it would be very useful to you, uh, we'll give you access anyway. So send us an email. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we are a no questions asked kind of organization. I don't care why you need access and can't pay for it. Don't care. Just, like, get the access. Um, That's it. Other than the fact that Eric is sitting at a very tiny table, which he is very reclumped about. over like a bear over, like, you know how, like, Winnie the Pooh hunches over. You love being a bear. Hunches over, like, a jar of honey. That's kind of how I feel right now. Yeah, but he's so happy when he does that. Yeah. He is happy. Aren't you happy? That makes him different than me. That (laughs) weird... Are you happy that we're here uh, recording? Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Um, so this is not the topic of the day, but I did want to start today with something that um, I think is probably the most important piece of book news that we have encountered mm-hmm. in quite some time, um, especially, you know, on this show that we have made the argument before that um, most publishing people need to be doing a little bit more broadening of their imagination with regard to who a book worker is. Mm-hmm. Um, it includes the people at the printer. It includes includes people at the warehouse. All these people who have their hands at any way on books are in the same struggle as you for uh, better conditions in this industry. And in that vein, uh, something pretty incredible happened late last week, and that is that at a uh, fulfillment plant in Staten Island, um, at a fulfillment plant for Amazon at Stanton Island. Amazon is really the part that makes this all incredible. Um, they have officially voted to unionize. Uh, the vote was 2,654 to 2,131. I'm reading from um, right now a Jacobin article by Alex Press, just with the basic details here. Um, and it's the first union of its kind um, in Amazon. It's, Amazon spent millions of dollars spent, trying to get it. They didn't yeah. spend just millions. I want to make sure. How much was it? So let me read to you from this. Um, so obviously this builds on the you know the prior attempt in Bessemer, Alabama, for Amazon workers to unionize. But here I want to read this one paragraph from uh, Alex Press's work here. It is hard to overstate the obstacle to workers in New York and Alabama face to get this far. In addition to Amazon's inordinately high turnover rate, a menace for building sustained shop floor organization, Department of Labor filings released yesterday show that Amazon spent $4.3 million on union-busting consultants, a startling amount for any company. Usually, it takes even megacorporation years to rack up that kind of a bill with the specialists in the uniquely American industry of professional anti-union experts. Many of the consultants leading captive audience meetings and otherwise crafting Amazon's war on organizing were paid $3,200 per day. Um, They did everything they could to stop this. A lot of it was pretty suspicious. A lot of it was pretty bad. Um, And the workers won anyway. And obviously there is a million fights to be had, you know, between getting a contract and all these things that are coming from it. But this is a major step. And... 
if people in publishing, everyone from editors to assistants to agents to whoever else, they need to see this as their fight to and as a victory that they need to help build with and like take heart in and find ways to plug into because if we're going to get the things that we want, this is like, like it's hard. I guess I'm just the thing that I want people to take from this is like, it doesn't get bigger than this. Like the accomplishing this at an Amazon plant at this scale in this time frame and doing it without joining an existing union. They made this from scratch. Like this is incredible. And it's one of the biggest like labor victories we've seen in decades. And it's happening in a field that isn't too far away from ours. You know what I mean? Like obviously Amazon has its fingers in all sorts of other industries too. And these people were, are working on things that don't have anything to do with books. But they're also um, working on they, books. Exactly. But they're also like, but this is our fight. And this should be something that we see as part of a collective effort that we all should want to contribute to and be a part of. And so I just want to shout out um, anyone who is involved with this. I think that this is a pretty heroic effort and deserves celebrating and not just celebrating, but learning from building from and using as energy and fuel to fight the next fight. So our main topic today is something that we've been thinking about for quite a while. Um, and it's surrounding kind of, or was it, I should say it's inspired by the discourse and what happened after a book by Sander Newman was announced. Um, the book was called The Men um, and was initially criticized for having a just generally transphobic premise and what happened was a lot of very nasty, turfy people came down and attacked um, a lot of people criticizing this project, particularly trans people. And we're not going to talk today about the transphobia or um, the failure directly. in feminism. We're not going to talk about that directly. But what I do want to talk about is inspired particularly by Anna Mardal's criticism of this book. Um, so a little bit of timeline. The project, the book itself, The Men, was announced. And a lot of people had a very viscerally negative reaction to the overall concept. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who had read the book or hadn't read the book and were just friend, like fans of the author or people who perhaps didn't like that some people were feeling bad about the overall concept as a whole um, came out and said, well, you just need to read the book. And then Anna Mardal, who is a trans writer, did a piece of very, very in-depth criticism. Book. Read the book. He read the book. So a lot of the non-turfy dog whistle parts of this conversation turned into a larger discussion about criticism. And that is particularly prevalent because one of Sandra Newman's defenders, Lauren Huff, was removed from contention from the Lambda Literary Awards because of her attack on other trans writers on Twitter. Um, we want to talk about criticism and awards and bias today. It seems to me that when people start talking about really any of the related issues here, whether it's what's the purpose of awards, which was something that came up, or what constitutes reasonable criticism, you know, any of these things, they're, the first thing that people do, it seems to me, is they start reaching for objective standards, right? Mm -hmm. They start reaching for, well, this is the boxes that need to be checked 
in order for something to be legitimate or this when it comes to um you know awards something these are the these are the objective standards you know they want that level of clarity and it feels to me like the point you and i are interested in kind of breaking down today is that all of these things whether it's critiques of work whether it's evaluations of work like in terms of online discussion or in terms of just like handing out awards for things like all of it is inherently subjective <laughs> and it's all it all comes within um, like social context it comes within an awareness beyond the work itself um, all these different things and I just feel like what happens when people get talking about this stuff is they start retrofitting what they feel like those parameters for what's allowed to be involved in evaluating a work. Yeah. So uh, like let's talk about concept for yeah, a second. Sure. That was the first that was the impetus for this whole thing is hey, this concept is transphobic, right? Um and people like it was you know, I think that is objectively true, but people saying, I don't want to read this because this concept is problematic. The answer to that is not, but you need to read the book because maybe it's not like I think I think it is perfectly acceptable to judge a book on its concept. Like, <laughs> look at the romance publishing industry and how often they publish Nazi romances. Like, well, let's, just, <laughs> let's just for a second, let's just take that basic mechanic. So. You look at a, like, for instance, you and I are inundated with book descriptions all the time. Literally, Literally dozens of dozens times a day. a day. And that includes not only queries, but also publishers' marketplace, right? Like, we're reading deal announcements that include Also, brief, as shoppers. As just shoppers, books that we anything. read. Like, so yeah. the question is, can you judge a book by its premise? And yes. I, th- I mean, the answer is yes, but the answer is yes because we're talking about matters of degree. I mean, there's no question that someone would have a more intricate understanding of what a book is and what it's arguing after having read it than before. But that doesn't make a critique beforehand on the level of premise less valid on its own terms, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I mean, I just feel like the when people start throwing the line, you have to read it first. It's always meant as a as a move as a moving of the goalposts or a deferring of a conversation, right? Like, Why is it okay to say, I don't want to read this book because I'm not really into books about dragons and this is a book about dragons, but it's not okay to say, I don't want to read this book that's all about this woman struggling to lose weight because that is fat phobic and that is like hurtful to me. So I can I like, why is the first okay and the second is not? So I'll tell you where I think people make that distinction. And it's on the level of the implicit suggestion of what should be done about the book. Like when if someone just simply doesn't like a premise because of various taste things or it's just not their genre or whatever, there it's very easy for maybe someone who is a fan of that book mm-hmm. to sit there and say, "Oh, they're not saying ban the book. They're not saying um, you know, this book should be shamed or, you know, cut out of, you know, its publishing network they or whatever. They just have bad taste. They just have bad, you know, <laughs> that can be left alone. But what happens, I think, and this obviously relates to larger conversations around cancel culture and other garbage like that, but, like, the the implicit thing that I think people who start defending, who start doing the well, you have to read it first, it feels like what they're responding to 
is a perceived call to ban the book that I don't think exists. Mm. You know what I mean? Like well, it's I think everybody wants to talk about the power of books only in a positive light. But the thing is is like too. when a book has content that is harmful to a person or a group of people, particularly a specific group of people because of even its premise, even if something basic is its premise, then that becomes, well, you know, this is free speech. Like, you don't want to ascribe power to books in the negative. You don't want to say a book can hurt somebody. But you can say that a book will change somebody's life for the positive and will inspire them to do something. Yeah, no, I mean, that that makes sense. And I, people are definitely more willing to ascribe, like, life-changing power of books in the positive than they yeah. are in the negative. And I do just wonder if, when it comes to that negative, like, I just feel like people end up hearing, like, a more severe version of what people are saying than, like, if you call, if you call a book transphobic, mm-hmm. like people were calling, or rather, this the premise of this book is transphobic. Sure. That's what people were saying about this novel in question, right? That can be a critique in and of itself, and it can be something that's subject to a matter of degree that doesn't necessarily have to mean, and therefore the book needs to be pulled and the author should be shunned from polite society and, you know, whatever other extreme measure. But I feel like its defenders often hear that Mm. and they start responding on the level of, oh, people, these, you know, people are being censorious. They're trying to, you know, cut things out. And like, sometimes it's a matter of, you know, people defending, you know, a writer or someone they like or, but it just feels like the level of severity gets cranked up so much because they're hearing something that isn't always there. And I do think it's because people aren't necessarily willing to hear, like, to hear criticism in the subjective sense or to the degree that we're talking about. Like, because... There's something really specific that happens, I yeah. think, on like in the in the online spaces that we participate in, yeah. which is a criticism of a book's premise is oftentimes less about the author and the book itself and more a criticism of the larger publishing machine yes, and the absolutely. capitalistic I think that's a good point. um like cogs that are making it happen and and more of so like Okay, I want to talk about the Nazi romances again. Because yeah. we get one, like, every year. Yeah, we like, do. We every just year. got one. We just got another one. And, like, these things win awards and they're bestsellers. And the the question is not how ever could this writer write this book? The question is... Because that answer is obvious. Because that answer is obvious. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the question is, uh. how could this book be published? Yeah. Right. And so it ends up like a lot of this, a lot of the critique of the premise in our spaces and amongst writers is a larger critique of the machine that we're all participating in. Um, And but a lot of the time people take it to mean this author or this book needs to be canceled slash banned, et cetera. And I think that you can be and I think most of the people who are critical of individual book premises and critical of the publishing machine um, are just point blank against banning books. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like, like yeah. nobody's asking for a book ban. That's what that, that's 
is the direct way of saying what I've been trying to dance around here. Yeah, it's yeah. like they're not. No one is demanding a level of like. Obviously, we've debated or discussed censorship on the show a million times before, and what it is and what it isn't. But like, no one's asking for that. You know yeah. what I mean? And like, we're just if we're po- if we're working in capitalism. We're we can make choices about what gets picked, you boom. know, and so that and what we purchase. So that sort of thing, that's the exi- so because on its face, I think in a totally neutral, like you don't. If I told you that someone was critiquing a book without having read it, boom, okay, without knowing any other details. Which, to be fair, we critique books without having read right. them well, every day. <laughs> Let me finish my hypothetical. <laughs> Sorry, here. like. If I told you just without knowing anything else about the people critiquing, the subject of the book, any other circumstance, and I said, oh, this person is really mad at this book they haven't read, it sounds a little silly. Like, why why, why would they be mad about something they haven't read? They don't know what's in it. All this kind of stuff. You can make this sort of facile argument. Well, of course they can't critique something without having read it. But obviously we do have lots of other details around this. And I think the question is at what stage and in what frame – can a critique of a book you haven't read be valid and meaningful and important as I think this one was? And I think it's because it's when a critique, apart from doing, apart from being pointed at the specific book itself, is pointing at a larger pattern and a larger system beyond this book. Mm -hmm. And on that level, I feel perfectly comfortable making critiques myself of books that I see pop up and announced. Um, of all sorts of things that I don't necessarily have to read to have an opinion on what I'm seeing in broader industry trends. And I think, like, so I guess that's a way of saying it's not this, like, ironclad own to say, like, you got to go read, like, you can't critique unless you've read, especially because I do think that there is a certain amount of hidden intent behind Mm -hmm. something like that. So, like, when a book gets announced, it's usually many months if not longer than when we will actually ever see the book right or before you can pre-order it exactly like it's the book is not here yet we're talking about something that people can could get so when you say don't critique this until you've read it there is a certain amount of banking on the fact that a lot of time is going to go by and you're going to hopefully you know, bank on, like, if you're someone really interested in the book not being as criticized, you know, you're sort of banking on, you know, the fervor around it dying down, you know, people moving on to other things, all this stuff, and mostly, mostly, mostly deferring the conversation this other party is trying to have to another point when then you can figure out a different way to shut it down. And the way I know that you probably are not actually interested in the conversation even when you say you are, which is after someone has read the book, is because throughout all of this, one thing that I feel like was pretty constant is a lot of people have read this manuscript. You know, there are people who had advanced copies and they got completely talked over. Yeah. They were completely ignored. Like there were people like I guess like on the most simple level possible, people did read the book and those people were completely shut out of the characterization of this conflict. It was like, oh, these people... But they were still attacked. That's important. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the shutting out part. Yeah. It's... Like, there's not a good faith... When you say, oh, you gotta read it first, you're not... You're usually not saying that in charity. Like, sometimes... So, for instance, like, you and I... If you and I were sitting here arguing about a book, I think that you and I typically operate 
on a level of good faith and we like each other and there's like a certain amount of mutual trust and like if I told you if like if you insulted a book that I really like and I said no you got to read it I actually would genuinely be interested in hearing your thoughts once you've read it I do not think this is true in this particular circumstance. Yeah. I don't think these people are going to sit around and wait. They're not going to loop back and say. Saying you have to read the book is moving the goalpost. Yes, it's because, a way of deferring the conversation that you eventually right. are going to find a different reason to not have Because what on. happened, particularly when Anna got an advanced copy of the book and he read it and wrote many, many thousands of words with textual screenshots yeah. and that sort of thing to um, back up his like very good literary criticism points that reinforced that people's initial reading of the premise was in fact transphobic, um, the goalpost moved again. And it was, well, you're trans, so it's biased, so we can't trust you. And how about that for a second? Because, (laughs) like, let's focus on that line of critique for a second, because I do think, one, it's, (laughs) it's just so maddening, right? Like, the idea that if you are of a group or identity or anything that is being written about in a book it's biased that you can't be a you can't be an objective critic of it because you're too close to it that's the sort of thing that would shut out that logic is extremely pernicious and could be used to all sorts of horrifying ends with regard to art and frankly lots and lots of other you know realms of social life and so like but that is what happened, right? Like, oh, you know, we can't trust these people. They're in hysterics because they saw something, you know, and their their opinion is too close and it's not objective. And I wonder, I think most people listening to the show will pretty quickly grasp why that isn't really a proper way to address critique. But the part that I think we could move to here pretty cleanly is the question of objectivity yeah. in criticism. Right. There there seems to have been, and I'm not sure, I, I would probably bet money on a fact that this is a, like, factor of online and, like, Goodreads-style discourse yep. and, like, fandom. <laughs> to be clear, it's definitely that. <laughs> I would bet money on it. <laughs> if anybody would like to send me money on this sucker's bet, um, I would take it. But, <laughs> um, but there's this idea that bias is a bad thing in critique and the thing is is like bias is a is a charged word right like you it comes across as negative but i i keep thinking well, about because when you like it it's perspective well or lens yeah. like 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 <laughs> yeah. so here's the yeah right. so i keep yeah. thinking about like my english major right and we kept talking about well this person is writing this critique through the lens of second wave feminism versus third wave feminism and intersect like their lenses color how you read a book which like welcome to fiction right welcome to art welcome to art yeah and they're again like the move the the moving of the goalpost is like the the retort to that is that pernicious idea that the lens through which you see the world is not legitimate yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think like from kind of pulled away from a specific example, I think we can all agree that that is not the case. And I think, you know, it is perhaps worthwhile to from time to time assess your own biases. I know you and I talk about this a lot. That was Moose, everybody. She's got a collar that she <laughs> needs everybody here. 
Um, but you and I talk a lot about like do I actually like this thing or do I think that I should like this thing? Yeah. And like as as people who work in publishing, yeah. we assess our biases, we assess our lenses, we assess our knee-jerk re- reactions to art all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that to be a good reader and to be a good literary citizen, that is not only a necessary thing, but also like a deeply rewarding thing. Yeah. Um, and like the bias therein is good. It's yeah. good because it it because it there is no such thing as no bias. There is no such thing as no lens. And you see you see this in the best literary criticism essays happening right now. Like I think about places that are doing a really good job with that. I think of like Jewish Currents, um, who you know we've had Nathan Goldman on the show before, yep. who's a literary critic in this vein, and like. You know, he'll write essays that very much incorporate his personal perspective into very rigorous, yeah. critical, you know, readings of things. We know how Nathan is going to feel about the Nazi romance book, <laughs> like, like, writing for Jewish like, currents. And, we know. And that's not the – and part of the reason we want – we would maybe want to read an essay anyway is because the point is we're not looking for a binary good or bad. We're looking for – thinking by a human with a perspective on something you know what i mean like and that's going to involve much more than just do i think like i i think some of this is a widespread flattening of the job of of like people's view of criticism being does this mean i should buy it or not yeah and that is like good reads like is it four stars or five stars and like that's not what we're doing or it's not what we should be doing and the fact that we have flattened it into that it makes it it makes people really hair trigger with like you know attacking you know each other when it comes time to talk negatively about something and it makes it very difficult i think to discuss books especially by authors that are otherwise popular in the negative because you know oh you haven't read you know there's like a whole army of people ready to do the defending and i also just think like separately like the fastest way online and frankly anywhere to bring in just like the cancel culture cavalry like the people who are like so strangely obsessed with everything being like a free speech issue even when it's not and all this stuff that we people have made entire grifty careers out of framing everything as like oh the sacrifice to the marketplace of ideas or whatever is for trans people to get upset about something like if that happens you can bet that every other corner of the internet is going to have this panic. Oh, man, trans people are upset about something. We better get in there and find a way to invalidate that concern or talk over them. Or, like, I just, I've never seen anything like it. Like, yeah. when. Well, it doesn't happen in other areas <laughs> no. of art. Like, when the idea it's of crazy. the binary good book versus bad book is not, this is not something that happens in films. Like, if you, you can ask anybody who watches movies. What is your favorite movie that you will only ever watch once? Yeah. Because like there with with like film or with television there is this idea that you can have value in in consuming something but not necessarily like enjoy it or think it's wonderful. Like like what movie yeah. do you think is great but you will never ever ever watch it ever again? Yeah, I mean, and I, that never happens with books. It doesn't because we're too conditioned on the on the book side of things to having conversations about 
like, I don't know, perfect progressive politics in books or, you know, reducing things to a binary of whether or not something is being yanked or not or whatever. And like, I do think like I have plenty of issues with the way people talk about film and TV, but I think that you're absolutely right that there is a slightly more mature, widespread perspective of it's fine to think that things are kind of good and kind of bad in different ways. And and like things that you know are like bad in the critical sense, but good in the entertainment sense. And that's that's where I want to take this now into the question of awards, mm. right? Because eventually that's where this got, is that all of a sudden Lauren Huff's book was no longer being considered for an award because uh, the Lambdas, you know, the kind of major queer literary award, right? Like... Um, because, you know, the whoever the powers that be, whoever there decided that, you know... She was causing harm she, to trans people right. and that award so, needed to be so, open and supportive for right. those. Yeah, so those that people. happened. Yeah. Suddenly her book is no longer up for consideration. And, you know, she asks in... You know, I have her, you know, substack pulled up. She wrote a little essay about it. And she ends it with this following sentence. Or um, pair of sentences. I am a queer woman, and I was silenced most of my life. I found my voice, but if my nomination is being withdrawn for using it, what the fuck is the point of Lambda Literary? So I want to, I think we should address, (laughs) I think we should talk for a second. What is the point of Lambda Literary if it's willing to yank consideration of a specific book by a queer person for their um, queer literary award? Like, why is that? Because I think you and I both feel that it was a fine thing for them to do. Yeah. And why succinctly, Laura, like, break it down for me. Why are you not totally morally alarmed by this award <laughs> deciding to yank a nomination? Well, I think to talk about this specific instance, I think I want to talk about a couple of different awards. Um, and And the thing is, is like, each award has different parameters and guidelines and different things that it wants to achieve. Okay. Um, and so, for example, the Lambda Literary, if you go to their website, lambdaliterary.org, and you look at the Lammy submission page, the first thing in the general eligibility guidelines is Lambda Literary Award submissions are judged principally on literary merit and content relevant to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer lives. Notice that there is no um, limitations about the identity of the individual writer. Mm-hmm. Compare that, for example, with the Women's Prize in Fiction, which was previously um, known as the Orange Prize mm-hmm. and then the Bailey Prize. Um, and the first thing that you see on their FAQ is the inspiration for this prize was that the Booker Prize of 1991 Uh, where none of the six shortlisted books was by a woman, despite some 60% of novels published the year being by female authors. So, like, you see already that you have two different awards. Much more concrete parameters on that one. Well, that one is we started this award because we wanted to give women an award, which is based on author identity, not necessarily book content. Then you've got the Lammies, which is on book content. Are one of these more, like, valid or prestigious than the other one? just by like virtue of the intention or the point of the award and the answer is no like no, people giving uh, awards yeah. can give the awards about whatever they want we've talked about that before too like just like awards 
there's this idea that awards are unbiased or that they are kind of um, objective. Yeah, and it's and crazy. I can't believe people think that. I can't believe people would want to think that. <laughs> like, the so to loop back to like this one person's having their nomination taken away, I actually think it's totally fine for yeah. a mission-based award that is designed around the advancement of like the queer literary scene, right? Like to look at the behavior of one of the nominees and basically whether or not you think that like this is what happened, but they I think they're within their rights yeah. to look at a situation and say this person is displaying behavior that kind of goes against the values we're trying to like further with this award yeah. and may say we don't want to give them an, like I think that that is fine and that isn't what people want to hear because they want everything yeah. to be this like strangely objective free speech debate which is not what this is which is not what it ever is you psychos like, <laughs> the lambda so the thing about the lambda is that it has a bunch of different categories it has one for every yeah. type of fiction on the LGBTQ spectrum, right? There's transgender fiction, there's lesbian fiction, there's gay fiction, there's bisexual fiction. And it seems like it is completely reasonable for an organization to say, hey, this person that was submitted for this lesbian book is probably going to make the people that are uh, submitted for the trans books they're, she's going to make them feel really bad and unwelcome. And so we don't want that because one of them matters as much. One category matters as much as the other category. Like the the fact that the writer's identity is a queer woman, which, again, is not part of the Lambda literary consideration. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is not a part of it. Yeah. No, I mean, I just think like in general whenever it suits them and a lot of the time it doesn't suit them and so they don't do it but people want to ignore context around different like acts of criticism or um you know awards or whatever you know basically people invoke or revoke context whenever it suits them mm. you know and the truth is that all good discussion of art and all like awarding of art comes within broader context outside it and we should want that, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Especially in an award that is designed to acknowledge the context in which the award is being given, like yeah. this one, you know? And it, Like, the Caldecotts are awarded by a very prestigious, yeah. um, like, selection of librarians. Like, this is a book that is awarded by librarians. Yeah. This is, yeah, like, that is a thing that is very different than, you know, the, the, the Booker Prize spends a ton of time profiling the people who are judging the, the Booker Prize yeah. because the committee, it's not, this is the best book of the year. It's what these, you know, whatever very famous novelist, critics, et cetera, think yeah. is the best book of Absolutely. this year. And that matters. And that human element matters. And that human element is what theoretically should make these prizes interesting and what should further discussion. Like, but I, I guess I just get so frustrated with this stuff because I don't think a lot of it is in good faith. I think a lot of the times people get mad at this stuff, one, because they think they can, because I think especially on the Internet, it's very easy to bully trans people into the margins. I think people do it all the time. I think that it sucks. 
I, and I think that when people see that as an opportunity, they take it far more than they might take other situations because they sense a power imbalance in their favor. And I think it's extremely shitty. But I also think that it's just a matter of not wanting like people aren't actually interested in having the conversations they are saying they want to have you know what i mean like i don't believe when you say read it and get back to me or you have to read it to have an opinion you don't want my opinion yeah you don't want it after i've read it you don't want like that's just not how this is going to go and it's just important and I, i just think like so much of this would go away if people understood like differing amount of degrees and obviously like on in online conversation which is where all this took place like nuance gets lost you know what i mean like but and you uh, can't trust an award organization to give you an award and then feel good about winning that award if you don't trust them to also like manage their own boundaries and ethics that's a great point like this is this is kind of that um like books being powerful thing where you want to believe and validate an award organization or a nonprofit or whoever's giving the award or whoever is judging the award in the positive. But as soon as they are doing something that you perceive to be negative, like all of a sudden their opinion doesn't matter and that it's like, it's complete bullshit and it's a racket and something like that. And you like, you can't have it both ways. You can't believe in awards and also believe in non-biased literary criticism. Yeah. You can't like you can't you can't pitch your book based on a concept and then get mad that people don't read it. This also you're totally right. And this also I think really highlights the difference in ongoing spheres of discourse between like publishing Twitter which is very much like I think this is something I encounter all the time in my feeds because I basically follow two kinds of accounts on the internet. I've got publishing people, which includes our colleagues, um, people at houses, lots of writers who are um, interested in talking about, you know, the querying process or the publishing, you know, what we kind of consider book Twitter in the operative, I work on books sense. Mm -hmm. And then what I would maybe call bookish Twitter, Mm -hmm. which is people who don't work in publishing but read a ton. You know, they're interested in talking about books. They're interested in reading essays and criticism and doing all these things. And I just find that the people who are not in books in the employment sense Mm -hmm. have a much easier time talking about things in the more, like, nuanced way we're describing. And I think it's because they're just a way – they've gotten away from seeing everything as, like, this transaction, right, or this binary of, like – is this good or not? Should I buy it or not? Should this book get buzzed or not? Should it be on the count? Like, it's less about... Do I want to be friends with this author? It's <laughs> There's less at personal stake, I think, in the other realms that I often observe literary conversation happening. And I just think, like, if people were more honest about why it is they're so fired up, you know, maybe it's your friend's book. Maybe it's, you know, a book you've worked on. Maybe it's something that... Maybe if somebody points out a piece of um, racism or transphobia or something that you didn't notice, you are just feeling bad about it because you feel like it reflects poorly on you. Maybe that's a separate thing that you should deal with on your own outside of book Twitter. Yeah, it's... (laughs) I don't know. 
I mean, there's not that much more to say about it here. I mean, I just think like this stuff gets blown out of proportion. One, because of a perceived power dynamic that people think they can win. And two, because people are operating in bad faith with regard to when or when not they're willing to invoke outside context around things, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, just just to kind of close this out and reiterate, the we believe that books are powerful and valuable. And we also believe that that power and value really comes through in the the nuances in the lenses of the readers like books are a two-way street it doesn't matter how wonderful or good your book is if people aren't reading and interacting with it and seeing themselves in this book or engaging or opening themselves up in other ways and I think it's really easy to forget about that or to think um that pulling yourself like pushing yourself and closing yourself off from this criticism which which I think Eric and I are both using that in a very positive sense in an interacting engaging sort of sense in a book club type of sense. Criticism is our only hope. Yes and like that is when your book becomes valuable. That is when your art becomes like a thing like you know like that is that is when it becomes truly truly art in the way that you are intending it to be um and like I love book criticism. I love do like we did a book club this summer with with Patreon. Like that was the best because we got to talk really critically about yeah. an individual project. Yeah. And I think I I want to challenge all of us to continuously examine the lenses through which we're looking at things, why we're reacting emotionally to certain things, practice receiving criticism. Um, And I think just like coming at books as art and books as powerful tools from a very neutral and sort of good faith kind perspective. I think the good faith part is key. I mean, you can just parse out like you just watch people go back and forth online. You can just tell that no one's actually saying the thing they're meaning. Like it's just, (laughs) it just drives me nuts, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, I don't know. Probably don't read that book, uh, <laughs> but read books that you like the concept of. And um, if you can pre-order books that you like the concept of, particularly by trans authors or with trans main characters, I would urge you to do so, particularly from your indie bookstores. We will see you very soon for our next regular episode. And for those of you on Patreon, we will see you over there even sooner. Bye. Bye.